This is a Praxis podcast. Imagine entering a room. Only a desk and two chairs. Nothing on the walls. Nothing distracting your attention. The examiner takes their place behind the desk. Preparing. Waiting. There is someone behind the examiner. Observing. Taking notes. Have they memorized the process? Do they give any indication of positive or negative reinforcements? Can they read without rhythm? Do they speak well? Can you understand them without issues? Does their handwriting seem legible? Have they tested their hearing and eyesight? Do they seem nervous? Have they had a good breakfast slash lunch? Are they dressed appropriately? Are they wearing good quality clothing? Are they wearing jewelry? Does their voice sound neutral? Do they smell? Do they have children? Have I memorized the process? Do I give any indication of positive or negative reinforcement? Can I read without rhythm? Do I speak well? Can you understand me without issues? Does my handwriting seem legible? Have I tested my hearing and eyesight? Do I seem nervous? Have I had a good breakfast or lunch? Am I dressed appropriately? Am I wearing good quality clothing? Am I wearing jewelry? Does my voice sound neutral? Do I smell? Do I have children? Have you memorized the process? Do you give any indication of positive or negative reinforcements? Can you read without rhythm? Do you speak well? Can you understand yourself without issues? Does your handwriting seem legible? Have you tested your hearing and eyesight? Do you seem nervous? Have you had a good breakfast or lunch? Are you dressed appropriately? Are you wearing good quality clothing? Are you wearing jewelry? Does your voice sound neutral? Do you smell? Do you have children? Yes, I'm very happy to be here today uh, with the residents of Understanding Intelligence across human and other than human worlds. My name is Nicholas John Jones. I'm the Director of Praxis. And to start off with, I'm just going to ask each of you to say a little something about yourselves. Sure. Um, I'm Sasha Bergstrom Katz. I'm an artist and researcher based in London. Um, I'm working on a project right now on intelligence test kits, looking at their material, aesthetic, and performative qualities. Hi, my name is Angelika Lefkadito, and I'm a historian of science uh, based in Oslo. And I'm working with a research project looking at the long history of intelligence testing and intelligence test kits. Hi, I'm Hanayu. I'm a visual artist based in Berlin. I make film and video and multimedia installation. Um, recently, I'm working on research project about animal experiments. And uh, I'm Helena Sommer. I'm a visual artist based here in Oslo, and I also work with video and film. And I'm currently working on a project uh, where I'm looking at how scientists approach animals. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I thought we could start. Um, Agalekia, I would ask if you could tell us a little bit about the collaboration that we've put together for this residency and yeah, what brought us all here today. Yeah, so as I said before, I mean, I'm working with this research project that looks at the history of intelligence testing and also at contemporary applications of intelligence tests in Norway and in a transnational perspective. And it's a research project funded by the Norwegian Research Council, three-year project. And there we have an interdisciplinary team of uh, researchers working together. So I've been familiar with the practice of praxis and bringing to uh, and uh, the effort to bring together different perspectives so i thought that it would be very fitting and interesting for uh, for this research project to have a kind of a parallel residency where we could bring together artists and and uh, researchers and discuss these issues um, but then because our focus was uh, or is on humans i thought that we kind of needed a counter perspective from a, a non-human perspective. So then um, we also reached out to Sofia Stathiu, who is a philosopher at the NTNU uh, in Norway as well. And she's been working with animals, uh, animal experiments, animal testing, and now has a project that is called Mitigation. Uh, 
uh, which looks at uh, ways of reducing uh, meat consumption in Norway. And um, we put together this residency and uh, yeah, we were hoping to get a lot of inspiration for each other and uh, create a lot of good discussion among the residents. I think um, one of the aspects that you guys have been working with over this time or looking at quite intensively has been this idea of testing. And uh, I had this question about how do you feel about the roles between kind of the artist uh, as an observer of the tester, it's like the different roles that are involved in this relationship of testing and, and then looking at that as an artist. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that there's uh, a few of us have been having these conversations and sort of trying to map out in some ways these kinds of relationships because already we're artists working alongside a research project or some of us are working with um, scientists. And so we're sort of trying to position ourselves in some ways as artists who are both observing but also maybe working in um, allegiance with researchers as well. So, so I do think it's been a kind of complex role. I mean, my project specifically, I'm looking at uh, psychology, which, you know, the testing has come out of these kind of very different fields, actually, of psychology, um, you know, animal behavioral sciences, uh, cognitive sciences, all of these different kinds of areas. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of a difficult position sometimes because you're not completely on the inside, but I'm making observations as I can <laughs> from from the outside. Yeah, for me, it's been, I've been I mean, part of my research has been spending time at the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior in southern Germany, where I was observing the scientists, uh, observing the animals or doing research on the animals. And I think being in this group, also talking to, speaking to other people who have been observing situations with human testing, seeing the parallels, uh, which are about uh, structures, uh, kind of knowledge production and uh, suddenly seeing that there are so many similarities between the different fields and also like the mutual positioning of several of us where we have this we observe the people observing and how 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 what what, what does our role role uh like what kind of position is that how do, do we influence the situation at all um also coming as an outsider i think it's it's an interesting position to have yeah i think i've i've always been interested in how discussions emerge um, among people who have who come from very different disciplinary backgrounds or some are very undisciplined also uh, so um, so then I've been thinking for example how can you establish a discussion between people who have different backgrounds and are very specialized on some fields so for me being a historian um, and coming from a humanities background and a critical humanities background, which seems that I, I look at science as an effort to understand the world, but I'm just also very attentive to power relations, control, um, the long history of scientific efforts and how, how they have maybe contributed to uh, colonization, marginalization, discrimination of people, and also to many other positive endeavors. Um, and so I'm coming from that background and I'm collaborating with scientists who are actually doing now the things that I may have been criticizing. So what kind of power do I have in relation to those scientists and what kind of possibilities of understanding do I have? And then when artists come in and, they, and then they might think that I am the scientist, it's a very interesting <laughs> like, yeah, it's a, a very interesting like inversal of perspective because I've been the observer mm -hmm. for, for quite a long time and also a, an observer of long dead people uh, like because my main subjects are dead and their archives and what they have left behind. So it's kind of like this, how you were saying before also, all of you like the observer who is being observed. Uh, so I think it's a very interesting position to be in and to discuss. Yeah. And I wonder if this one, if we wanted to sort of bring this into one of the projects that kind of emerged out of this um, prototyping um, kind of uh, method that we used over the last 
week together to sort of think through some of the themes that were coming up. Um, but you know, one of these was about the looking at the role of the test administrator in 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 the context of doing um, intelligence testing. And this is something I've looked at as well and have been interested in. Sort of how do the test kits um, provide a script for for um, test administrators? But then this has come up otherwise too in, in the um, piece that you read at the beginning of um, you know who who's watching the <laughs> the test administrator um, so I think that these kinds of roles have been power positions and uh, the role of the observer has kind of uh, wove, been woven through many of our conversations and for me like being here in the situation where there are so many people with similar interests has made me even more aware of my own Positioning. I mean, this was something I was interested, but I hadn't articulated it so much in my head. What I was actually doing, my positioning in in the situation, uh, just like being in the lab, being behind the scientist with my camera, asking questions. Obviously, uh, I I influence the situation as well. So it's interesting. And as a side side question on that. Um, do you guys have perspectives on the position of the tests themselves? Do you have, you know, do some of you feel that they are good or bad or something <laughs> else? You know, these are very, I'm putting it in black and white terms, but you know, what's your, what grey area do you see this? I find them very problematic. I mean, about the testing of the humans, I, I only know what I've learned like so far, but it's very complicated to put, to, yeah, use a diplomatic word. <laughs> Yeah, I think that um, I absolutely agree that they are problematic and I would even say that I think it's bad science. Um, I do think that the, the tests are not one thing. They have acquired very different roles like historically and they have different roles today. They had different roles at the same time also. So, so the tests are not one thing, but when I'm looking at the quality of the research behind them, etc., then I do think that they are a kind of bad science. But at the same time, I think what is interesting to look at are the projects that have motivated the development of those tests. So behind the tests, you can find projects ranging from control of immigration and eugenics to very, very progressive reform, edu uh, educational reforms and attempts to include children that otherwise would have been marginalized and left out outside of the school. So the tests are, their, their roles have been complicated and changing throughout uh, times, but the tests themselves as an instrument, I think they're a bad instrument for science. And then, so you talked about kind of this uh, the title of the residency being understanding intelligence across human and other than human worlds. How does the other than human come into this conversation? No, I I, I think it's I mean uh, some of us have uh, focused on or are interested in the animal world, and I think I mean that was immediately because I was interested in how animals I mean animal experiments and how scientists approach animals. Um, when um, I think this idea about testing intelligence very much feeds into this as well. And there are, I mean, which I realize even more, there are a lot of similarities in the same issues, similar issues. Um, I was also happy to say that in where I was doing my research, uh, they also had one guy working on plants within animal behavior. So obviously this idea of looking at intelligence and behavior also extends to not only animals, humans, but the non-human world can be many, many different things. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I haven't worked at all with, uh, with sort of non-human animals or, or other areas in terms of my research. So I was actually quite interested to come here to think a little bit more um, broadly about it. But one thing that I did come in here with was sort of the problematic scaling of intelligence across non-human animals to humans, as if there's a scale of intelligence where we should rank ourselves and each other um, on this kind of fictional scale, as if there's one 
one kind of understanding of intelligence. Um, and so this, you know, hearing more about other people's research and what they've been working on has got the wheels turning <laughs> more yeah. on this. Obviously, not... in the animal world, you have this very strict hierarchies, and the closer you come to the human race, the, the more intelligent the animal is, according to, mm-hmm. to science. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. No, I'm just I'm just thinking uh, along the same lines that um, while we have been discussing and having this residency, I mean I've been interesting in the animal from before, but um, during our common research here, for example, we found all these titles, especially in popular science articles, where okay, um, sharks are intelligent, and this is intelligent, and the other thing is intelligent. It's like we are discovering the whole time that one more uh, kind of animal, group of animals, is intelligent, or plants are intelligent, or 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 um, mushrooms are intelligent, etc. And we are kind of using this very human-centric approach to describe things that may like that cannot be described with the word intelligence, possibly. And it's a very bad, um, I don't know, it's a very bad definition of certain abilities that we don't have other ways to, to describe or that we are lazy in trying to find other ways to describe. So then we use this kind of a half-baked, uh, popular term to talk about everything. And also how like knowledge, like it's about knowledge production within science is how it's knowledge production builds on history, meaning that sometimes uh, new knowledge builds on archaic knowledge at times. Uh, mm. And these structures are so deeply set in society and also within, this, within the science communities that it's difficult to, to change. Obviously, it's possible to change. Yeah, but even, I mean, I'm thinking a little bit about Sophia's project, and I think sometimes there's the the um, the defense of eating, for example, particular animals because they're not intelligent, or or that becomes some kind of a, a defense for actually what happens to animals, what what animals can be tested on in labs, these kinds of things have to do with this kind of ranking. So there's these kind of real world material. Um, uh, things that happen um, based on this kind of ranking system. Yeah, and I think this process of valuation can go so many ways. So, for example, we might say that it's okay to eat the animals that do not have so many emotions or are not uh, intelligent or whatever, but we might want to test the animals that are very intelligent because they are very much like us. But then at the same time, we have lots of ethical regulations as we go more and more towards animals that we think are like us. So as as you have mentioned, Helena, and I think it was a very nice point when you said, okay, insects, well, we can kill as many as we want in a lab because, yeah, who cares? There are so many, they're probably not as intelligent. But if you want to do research on primates, for example, you need to go through a very, very careful and, and for many good reasons, of course, ethical assessment of your research. So I think it's a very interesting way how we put value on everything we do all the time. And somehow intelligence is part of that, but can... It can is, it's also about ways. our knowledge. These, like, let's say you see hierarchies as example. Uh, when we, as you said, also, like, suddenly we find, oh, sharks are intelligent. The new animals become intelligent. But as long as we don't know, we put them in that category of not being intelligent so like the octopus everyone knows now the octopus is spineless doesn't it was it wasn't supposed to have any rights but then we found out oh it's super intelligent of course now it has rights but before we just didn't have that knowledge same with birds you know we said bird brain small brain unintelligent but birds happen to be very intelligent we just found out we didn't know before we didn't have the science before yeah, and then just to to go back to this like arts and science thing that we started discussing, I think the, um, for example for the octopus, uh, a big part of thinking so much about the octopus is of course the scientific research, and it's and it's also the humanities research on like philosophy of science, etc. And at the same time, it's also cinema. Like uh, before the octopus teacher, there were not so many people who were thinking about octopuses mm-hmm. and what they're doing, or the octopus in my living room. And suddenly you have a, like a 
so many films and, and books etc about about octopuses and then they become a different kind of creature than the octopus that was an alien before yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. so that becomes somehow intelligence as a as a measure of value and something that we like whether it's human intelligence or non-human intelligence we value intelligence very highly in society and we put this as a film but also intelligence according to human the Mm. premises of human intelligence i mean this is also of course the next question and we don't know all the answers to that that can it be something entirely different than what we're used how we're used to thinking about it Yeah, maybe we should just wrap it up. How long have we been going for, Kevin? Uh, We're only about 15 minutes. Okay. Good, I'm so afraid. Yeah, me too, so that was like a bit reserved. Okay, should we go a bit like, how long? Maybe we should have one more question, one more theme. Mm. Hmm? Um, Yeah, and I mean, so in terms of this discussion about, uh, well, you've brought, you've all brought up quite a, number of different angles already in this short conversation about human intelligence, non-human intelligence, value, testing. How have some of these, or perhaps even other aspects of what you've been dealing with over the last three and a half weeks, how do you think that they will influence your practice, or how do they relate to the work that you're making at the moment? Well, uh, I can say, I mean, I, I mean, we've all come here with, with different backgrounds and materials, mm-hmm. and I I came with research material for a new film and I I think and my whole idea was to bring it here kind of open-minded and it was to see what happened when keeping my research material in mind I had conversations with other people coming from different perspectives and it's certainly I think it certainly influenced my way of looking at my own material specifically because it opened up the whole idea to the human testing perspective which I didn't really have so much knowledge about and this whole idea that it to me is interesting to look at it in the sense that it has to do with structures within science and knowledge production in general almost there are certain like quite big questions which I find very interesting uh, which uh, yeah I've uh, gained some new insights thanks Elena yeah, I mean, for me, I think, as I said, I, I'm, I need to go and sort of uh, stew on it a bit more in terms of the relations between human intelligence and testing and science and um, non-human science and, and animals, which I just hadn't really worked on before. So I'm sort of curious about. But I think the thing that has that's really been sticking with me in some ways, um, and this kind of goes back to what we started talking about, was the role of the artist in these places. And I'm sort of, I, I can't put words to it yet, but the I feel unsettled by it in a way that's hopefully gonna be productive of, you know, what, what would my role as an artist be in both sort of humanities academic research, but also if I did want to participate in some way, observe scientific research, what would I be doing in that place? Would I be changing in any way what the research is, what it looks like? Would I be commenting on it? Would I just be bringing it back to um, my smaller artistic community and sh- and showing them? Am I critiquing it? Am I working? Um, alongside it sometimes. So, so this kind of position of art um, in scientific and academic um, research more broadly is still uh, like a thorn in my side. <laughs> I, I second that. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that we, we started with that, like the, our discussion in the podcast today, because I think many of us have had this kind of realization that this process kind of made made that question more urgent for 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 many of us but for for my for my part i think there was um the whole residency and our discussions was a series of very of very small uh, revelations all the time it was like things that i have been thinking about and suddenly someone said something like for example i have been thinking about when how do i describe that tests are traveling between places 
spaces, places, people, etc. And then some, somehow um, Helena said, I think in, in your videos or something we were discussing and you said, yeah, things migrate. And then that made so much sense for me because migrating is not something that is happening without a bureaucracy, without barriers, etc. So I think like migrating is a much better term than traveling. Or when we, when uh, when Molly and Hannah used uh, the vocabulary, that the, the words that are actually part of the tests to make a poem, and they made a point about how that language is quite violent. Uh, it's it's something that I have been thinking about for a long time, but then your work made it so obvious to me that you know, kind of confirmed and took it a bit further that okay, this is how it is violent in a way. So so when you see it in a poem, for example, when you see these words one after the other, it's kind of like it gets so strong. And and um, and then last thing is like I've been. I have been, I, when I came into the residency, I had this idea that I really want to look at what is happening as a power relations, relationship between the examiner and the person who is being examined. What is happening in that, um, in that space between them. And through our discussions and, and inspired very much by Sasa's videos and work, I kind of thought much more about the examiner as a person and how that person becomes something else during the, the the testing process and how the tests actually make that person into or try to make that person into a specific kind of person who will behave in specific ways during the testing process and some might do it well according to the manual of the test and some might diverge because they feel more empathy or because they cannot they cannot be into that process. So now, like my research focus, I think has has changed a little bit more towards the examiner. But these are, you know, like these are like the immediate thoughts. I don't know what's going to happen in a month, but I know that this kind of residency and discussions has opened uh, many more possibilities in my head. Mm. And Hannah, are there aspects that you think you'll take back to your practice? Yeah, actually, I came here actually have a like quite a personal goal of establishing the contemporary animism by myself. Um, and then I actually sort of did it through my poem that I already read in the podcast. <laughs> but also personally, because I've been interested in um, in marginalized subject um, in many cases, um, like in science as well, um, such as like animals, um, um, less important animals. But then also through this residency, I got um, quite interested in children actually, because we were all, all of us were children. Um, but in a way through this test, um, children and others are other side of the table and has a different um, type of power dynamic happening in, in the table. And I kind of, um, for me, it's a kind of next step. Maybe I would like to look into um, child as a um, marginalized subject. So yeah, that could be, that was my inspiration from residency. Mm. Yeah. It's very interesting. And I mean, that thing of <clears throat> starting thinking about working with children brings up even more the one of the things that I think about as we discuss this topic is these questions of ethics. And many of mm -hmm. you have touched on that already, but um, how in your own work and practices do you deal with the ethics around you know, the perspectives that are being created? And I can say something that is very uh, s somehow simple because I'm, I'm a researcher. So the way that I deal with ethics is very, very regulated. It's not my way of dealing with ethics. Of course, in, the, in, all, that, in all those regulations, when I'm doing research that includes human, um, human subjects, either archives or, or living people, uh, interviews, etc., uh, there are uh, rules and norms set by the ethics committees of Norway. Um, 
but at the same time, I think because I have to adhere to these rules and, and norms, uh, it's a process for me. To, it's a kind of an invitation and a process for, for me. It's not just a bureaucracy. It's something that makes me think very thoroughly about what is left out of those rules and norms and what is very much needed to do from my side. But but I think it's um, for a researcher, you have their a kind of a, um, how to say, a framework that you need to be to place your research in. Yeah, and I'm, I'm from from my side as a visual artist, I'm obviously don't have the same like rules and regulations I have to to follow. But I've been very interested in this framework itself. I mean, as uh, a structure and a mechanism. So at least what I've been doing so far, I've been doing a lot of interviews and conversations, and this has been something I've been very interested in how one thing is also like the framework and the rules and regulations themselves but also on a personal level the scientist as an individual because it's one thing is what you have to do another thing is also what your your own personal ethics are what you feel comfortable doing mm -hmm. so this has been uh, certainly a point of reference to me when I'm uh, developing my work yeah and I think thinking about that question of ethics as you were talking about there Helena um as artists, each of you, in the way that you approach it, are often working in dialogue with institutions or professionals or individuals. And there becomes a trust that's interesting, that mix between the regulation that Agalecki talked about and as artists, the kind of almost like relationships of trust that you build in, in order to get the, the kind of research and the kind of the different value that has in those different positions. But um, yeah, so I'd like to thank you all for, for being so open uh, now and uh, yeah, a short discussion we just had. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Okay, so my name is Hannah. I wrote a poem inspired by this residency. And it was it's originally written in Korean. So I'm gonna read in Korean first and then English version. <laughs> 나는 모든 것에 무언가가 깃들어 있다는 믿음을 원체 버릴 수가 없는데 이는 내가 어릴 때는 순수함이라고 불리었고 조금 더 커서는 약간의 아둔함, 유치함 그리고 성인이 되었을 땐 정신병이라고 불려졌다. 오랜 교정과 설득, 치료에 의해 이제 나는 내가 앉아있는 의자를 인격화해서 부르진 않지만 언제나 내 몸을 바치고 있는 그녀에게 미안하고 고맙고 언젠가 그 역할에서 벗어나게 해주리라 생각했다. 그래서 그녀의 내 다리를 잘라냈다. 이제 그녀는 아무도 받쳐낼 필요가 없다. 
Um, but I also use um, test forms in my poetry. So I was interested in looking at the tests and discussing them with, with others, especially people coming from different disciplines to kind of get a, a different take on them. Yeah. Um, I'm Charlie Harrison. I'm an artist that's based in the UK. Um, and my work's um, often about how we perceive the world um, and the commonly overlooked. Um, I also work really closely with neuropsychologists and people living with rare dementia. Um, and so I was particularly interested in um, the sort of testing aspect of this residency, as it's an area I've worked with a lot in the past. Um, and yeah, I, I was really keen to work with um, other practitioners working with similar themes to learn from each other and work in new ways. Yeah, um, and I'm Sana Sunstuba. Um, I am in Oslo currently and I'm also an artist. I'm very interested in how we understand things and look at that through the lens of the everyday language and meaning in more in general. Um, and I was very interested in how we dissect the idea of intelligence and having different people come together from different angles and see how we kind of form a fuller picture of what um, the concept of intelligence is. My name is Sofia Estathiu. I'm working as a senior researcher in philosophy at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, which is in Trondheim in Norway. Um, and uh, I've been working in philosophy of science and very interested in scientific concepts and measurement. And so, you know, this brings me to um, the concept of intelligence and uh, also uh, connecting to my work on human-animal relationships and thinking about intelligence in more than human ways. So during this residency you guys have covered quite a lot of different areas in the last subjects through this exploration of intelligence in different forms. Um, have there been particular aspects that have informed your practice? So maybe start with Charlie. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. One of the things that's been really nice is that we, we spent a lot of time just getting to know each other and each other's practices. And I think we've all found that quite exciting. Um, and so in the second week, we sort of really focused on getting a bit deeper into that and working in pairs um, on sort of like new ideas and sort of just playing together a little bit. And yeah, I tell you, that, that process has definitely sort of informed my practice. Um, just in terms of like the potential for collaborating with people and like how new ideas might get formed. And then also how that sort of structures ideas when you take them back um, to your own world as well beyond that and where connections are still lying. And um, yeah, that, that's that been really like um, exciting for me. And I think just drawing from people come like from different practices as well, like you have um, the science um, and also philosophy, I think, really plays into that. It's like um, nice to see people with different backgrounds come together and share their experiences of things. And I think I'll really take with me um, just how differently you can approach something and how that will form your understanding of that concept. But also I think I've really enjoyed the 90 minutes we've had to work together to see how fast you can actually produce something. Um, and maybe it doesn't have to be that serious. And, but there's, you'll still get something from that and maybe you'll still learn something along the way. Maybe you could say something a little bit more about what that 90 minute format was. I yeah, um, so I don't really remember how we came up with it, but I remember I had um, this kind of introduction to my practice where um, I'm quite playful in the way that I approach my work and meaning and signs and symbols. Um, and so I thought of this um, ID where we it's kind of like Chinese whispers and uh, with every so we all draw um, an everyday object and then send it to the next person and they get a little less time um, to draw the same object and then towards the end you have like five seconds to one second to produce the same object and see how kind of um, they differ from each other and then from that I think we gave it's I think this idea of like reproducing something and coming together and creating something and developing that I think kind of um, spun off from that and then in the um, third week I think we started really um, looking at collaborating and really just we had so one hour um, and 30 minutes to talk to one other person and I think a lot of the time at least with the ways that I produce things um, you 
really spend most of the conversation like time just talking to someone and having a conversation about your mutual interests and then from that I think grew poems found poems and video works and really just described how we all understand something yeah um actually yeah in 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 several ways it's actually even a bit too soon to see the impact of the residency but i can see that i'm um i can see that i'm embracing the more uh, performative and artistic uh, elements that have been already part of my work and have been already part of my interest and my philosophical interest and has been a great opportunity to think together and to play together and to create together with so many uh, wonderful artists. I was going to say talented, but you know, the, even the concept of talent now, <laughs> we are um, critically thinking about. So yes. Yeah, I feel like I've gained a lot too from um, working with artists in other disciplines because I'm working with language so much. It's been really generative to work with artists who are using more image-based or video-based um, art. And so when we were doing the 90-minute kind of brainstorming, prototyping with each other, where we kind of we wanted to produce something even if it was messy and just in the drafting stage, um, and so working with Hannah, who does a lot of um, video and um, sculpture and image stuff, um, creating a found poem with her where we kind of combined my language side of things with her visual side was really interesting because I haven't thought of found poetry so much in my own practice. And then the way we both created two very separate poems was, was interesting where um, I tried to kind of tell more of a narrative and then Sophia, I mean, then Hannah's was much more visual. I mean, it was just cool to see the different ways we approach prompts and, and kind of learn from each other that way. Hmm. It's interesting um, how a number of you have dealt with uh, poetry throughout this and who perhaps wouldn't, weren't normally working with that. But I think, you know, um, this idea of language seems really central to this discussion of intelligence and uh, its implications. And if some of you would talk a bit about that. Yeah, um, I really, I think looking at tests as well, which we have done a lot, we even went, went to uh, the University of Oslo and looked at uh, Aguilar Key's project on, on tests um, of intelligence. I think what became clear is the way that these um, tests were structured and the clear instructions that you gave, gave not only to um, the child being tested, but also to the tester it's like themselves. Um, and there's something like about the the symbols of things and the missing like the mismatch and the matching of um, of symbols and how they come together I think relates a lot to the way that you understand things and I'm particularly intrigued by how this kind of is reflected back into the world that we exist in and um, I think how a lot of the images of um, maybe people cooking at home and those kind of uh, world building tests as well were a part of the world that they they were taking from the everyday world that we usually live in and then put in this weird setting um, and then you know you take different parts of it and analyze it and some, sometimes it becomes a part of a statistics and it's just something really interesting about that sorry yeah, language is also very interesting and <laughs> important yeah I mean I don't know uh, yeah I've also I was also thinking as you're speaking Sana about this element in testing of recreating or reinforcing in some ways an, a normality or an, a conception of normality whether it's through language or through depictions of actions or everyday situations or uh, this play of forming a world and how interesting it was I think to see some of the tests like the absurd the absurdity images for example and see them also as actually you know very creative or very imaginative or very fun and how somebody who would somehow connect to that image would would be a, a weirdo <laughs> or a sort of a problematic uh, by by these testing standards so 
that was very clear to me and and of course yeah language is part of um the way we communicate with each other and we establish this common reality so these disruptions in language i guess is one one way to uh to test to test the how con conformed people are uh sorry um with this normative uh, idea of uh i don't know uh, well you know intelligence or um yeah, and I, I, I think a lot of the sort of um, work that we did together then worked around how to sort of like destructure that language in some way or like use it in another way or um, in fact I, I, I was struck when we did this sort of open house event last night how much um, other forms of communication were coming into it as well things like gesture um, and the sort of way that people speak with each other um, yeah, and I, I thought that was quite interesting because we were sort of with. A, there's been a bit of an agreement amongst the group in some ways that these sort of testing structures are almost not entirely fit for purpose, and that sort of raises mm. a question then where, you know, what might you replace it with, or like what other form of communication or of um, structuring um, might we be looking for? Yeah, because when you decontextualize the language in the tests. It is very strange, like when, when Hannah and I were collecting different um, phrases and questions from the, the test to make our, our found poems, it was particularly the Wexler Intelligence Scale for Children and then the ITPA test, um, which focuses on like psycholinguistic testing. Um, some of the questions out of context are like very profound or like even like evocative, like I have here like why should a promise be kept and in in the context of the test there's you know like two or three right answers to that but if i were to try to <laughs> if i were to try to answer that on my own it would take um hours um and then yeah and i feel like as well with the tests and even with language itself like there is one right answer and there's a wrong answer particularly in the test but i think also with like reading something or understanding something um, that is written down, there's one right way of reading it and one wrong way of reading it. Mm -hmm. And there's something very interesting about like when you abuse that, you know, if you abuse the idea of intelligence itself or if you abuse the, the text that's written, um, mm -hmm. what comes out of that? Yeah, it's a la language feels slightly less flexible in, in some ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked about this, Molly, a little bit last night as well about how <clears throat> some of the artists were maybe doing things were like, really like left a field or like like it felt a bit more flexible maybe whereas you wouldn't necessarily use language in that same way or if mm. you know it's, it's harder to abstract it because the meanings are so ingrained yeah and I think that it's I mean language is vulnerable when you take it out of context because anything out of its environment can be kind of strange so I, I do feel like um, when I take the test language out of its um, testing purpose. It's easy to kind of say, oh, how, this, this is ridiculous or this is absurd. And I so I know that they are serving a specific purpose. So I, I was kind of torn in, in creating these poems with the language from the tests. Um, it, my point isn't really to like parody the tests, which, you know, obviously have a lot of research behind them. And I think we do have like a healthy amount of skepticism toward the tests um, and kind of questioning um, their purpose or the different um, language that's used. But I do think one cool outcome of, of scrutinizing the language was the patterns that you find that might not be initially apparent to people who are writing the test maybe. Like I found there's a lot of language that's sort of um, aggressive or almost like sinister. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, finish the sentence. Here is a knife. Here are two. What is the thing to do? when you cut your finger, why are criminals locked up? And so when you um, spaced out across a test, it's not as obvious, but then when you put it all together, you're thinking, oh wow, there's something kind of strange about how the language follows this pattern. Hmm. Even in this uh, test that you and I, Molly, were kind of working with, which didn't consist of words, but just gestures, it was um, images of hands and of feet, and some of these images again were the hand gestures were 
basically a lot of fists or <laughs> a lot of like hands that were clenched and holding or um, not you know some some of these gestures that one might uh, interpret as inviting like open hands or um, yeah so I mean actually in connecting to that I think also this residency and working with the test makes us think about the concept of language and what it is or how it is that we're communicating and in, in how many levels and what different forms. So besides language understood as sort of uh, text, uh, we've been working with language understood as gesture or as uh, image or um, a sound uh, so I think it's also been a dimension of the of the residency that's very um, useful and I think that comes across also in the works of these prototypes that we produced. Sophia can I ask because it's mostly your background really in the sort of because we've been also work thinking about animals and um, yeah. other than human intelligences. I, I'm sort of interested in how your perspective on that's developed um, through this as well. Hmm. On, anim on animal intelligence, yeah, that's a good question because I think we have been, we have been working with, uh, with some of the video footage and also some of the, the I think also this piece that uh, Sana and I were doing with language as gesture, with this the idea of language as a liquid uh, or as a medium where we where we exist, um, for me connected with a uh, with how I'm thinking about animal intelligence as sort of as a continuum from uh, from non-human animals to human animals, so so perhaps not so much with the, well, yeah, so I don't know if I have a clear answer, <laughs> if that was a clear answer, actually, Charlie. That's what, but, what? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. I don't know if I, if I can say that I had new insights in terms of like how I understand intelligence, but perhaps, I mean, I, I, I think I have like, it's more a methodological insight or finding that which which of course was already a hunch or already something that you know attracted me to the residency and to working in this format which is that you know like this kind of method of working because i i think it is a, a method to kind of invite people together from these dis different disciplines and just like make them do something together you know like with a kind of artificial constraint of like yeah you have like an hour 90 minutes or something to uh come together and of course we had done some background like a, a whole week of um say like learning and getting to know each other um but i think that kind of method was uh was a new thing and a method for working with these concepts across different mediums, going beyond the language of text, which is uh, excluding animals or non-human animals uh, from the conversation. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was a sort of bit that I was interested in is that, like, obviously we're having a conversation about language and particularly like verbal language and things and that <laughs> it's not something that works very well. Um, obviously, mm. some animals understand a certain number of words and things, but but yeah, yeah, there's definitely been this element of like the perspective of animals is always seen through this human filter and we're still using um, sort of these language forms to um, yeah. assess air intelligence and things. Yeah, I guess my approach to that is also it's just it's to think of ourselves as animals. I mean, you know, because it's also, you know, the work that needs to be done one in two directions. One is yes, to consider animals as closer to humans but also humans closer to animals so so in that sense i think um, i mean you know we we did both um and connecting with this kind of language as gesture or as embodied or as expression that 
uh, for me is one way to bridge kind of through the body and through the through the sort of lived experience of language with uh, with other animals. I guess it does become difficult, doesn't it? Because we're so invested in ourselves that we only really yes. we can't think like past our own consciousness, and then suddenly. Oh. There are dogs or birds and they must exist because we do or because of us so, somehow mm. and so we yeah. like take them as ownership or, or something it's so odd how we've come to this place and then trying to come back to a place where we existed um together with them i think is so difficult because we always mm -hmm. seem to think of progression as moving past something i think I, I, talking about existing together with them i'm thinking of charlie's charlie and helena's work with you know like collecting all these images and making the animals around us visible uh through that uh, collection i thought it was really good also but of course also showing that a lot of these images were not like they were kind of dead or dead animals or <laughs> kind of including uh, the meat from the supermarket yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah i mean i suppose the the really interesting thing for matt was um, was how many functions the animals were performing in the world around us, and and yeah, the sort the sort of expectations were then built into them. Like, and I think yeah, that that was sort of quite enlightening to me. And then, and then also trying to think. Say more. What kind of functions? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure if I write them down. <laughs> um, yeah, but so okay, I have got them here. Like so, decorative um, through mythology. Some of them are emblematic or cute, um, promotional, entertainment, indoctrination is a common one as well. Like the really f happy farm animals on the like kids' toys and mugs and things. Sometimes informative or personal or you know sustenance to some degree. There's quite a few. I'm about halfway through the list, so we don't need to go through all of them. But yeah, it, it just feels that they're so animals are so ingrained to the point where it's almost invisible. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was interesting when we went to the Museum of Cultural History um, and sort yeah. of seeing more sort of historical uses of animals, and particularly this little yeah. bear that was like it was such a cute little bear, but it obviously had this sort of very particular sort of. Um, use almost like spiritual i suppose to to bring strength to, supposedly to um to the person that was um keeping it um mm -hmm. and i don't know there's aspects of that that feel like quite important that we sort of go away from a little bit like with i mean you've mm -hmm. talked about this idea of effacement sophia as well mm -hmm. um and you know I, I feel like our connection with that world has become more and more distant even though it's very very present in life yeah it's so interesting, as you say, it's like the, because we have, in some ways you can say it's like, a, also very pagan in a way, uh, history, because, I mean, in the religions of, I guess, Christianity, and I mean, maybe there are some animals, but not really, right? I mean, in this tradition, like, uh, of Christian thinking, animals are a resource for for us, and I'm not sure about. Actually, I haven't studied enough other. I know in, of course, Jainism and uh, some of these religions of animals are highly respected and prominent. And but in uh, Christian, Muslim, I would imagine religions that are sort of the more dominant, we don't have the spirituality of the animals or of, uh, respected or uh, included so but still you have we have we have them as emblems we have them as uh, are populating our our worlds right i feel like they always seems to be they always seem to be symbols of something else you know maybe they symbolize strength in the person or if you go to you know um a lion you can be a lion or a scorpio and somehow they become something else as it relates to the person. Mm -hmm. Then you think that's a problem, Sanna? It's like kind of like a... I don't know if it's a problem, but I think it's still... I feel like it still relates it back to our human way of understanding things. That something yeah. exists because of us, instead of coexisting with us in some way. 
Mm. Molly, what do you think about this dimension or like the kind of... Um, yeah, something I, something that I thought was interesting is when we visited, I think it was the Cultural History Museum, and we saw the control exhibition that went through mm-hmm. a lot of human-animal relationships. Um, just the premise of questioning if like there hadn't been an agrarian revolution, and we actually didn't develop this history of using animals as tools for cultivating, like, human societies how would the world be different and if we hadn't developed this um kind of relationship where animals were always in service for our needs um you know in societies that did have kind of the agrarian focus and i had never considered that and so even that basic premise of how would the world be different if we just had um a different kind of genesis with animals and, and how would that change um so I think it's it's something that really goes back very far into the formation of of modern society. Mm. And it it does feel like it relates to this sort of structuring around intelligence and human intelligence as well. It it, it feels like they almost like go slightly hand in hand as well. And so yeah, it's it, yeah, it's an interesting question for us to know just to think about what an alternative world in in both yeah. those senses. You know, there's research in um, psychology around food that that uh, uh, that shows that we tend to downplay the intelligence of animals or the sort of capacity of mind for animals that we eat. So people have been shown animals in the context of food and in the context of just you know the wild, etc., and they tend to when once they're primed with food they they downplay the quality the abilities of uh, these animals so it's also very interesting in a way how how the fact of using them and like and our our uh, perception of them as sort of lower organisms go hand in hand and like reinforce each other yeah and i think uh well, there's there's much more that we can talk about, but uh, we should wrap up now because of the end. But uh, so, as a little little outro, I just say, um, you know, thank thank you all for your perspectives and I, thoughts and ideas around this this subject of intelligence. And uh, I'm very interested to see what's going to come out then following the residency. Thank you. Yeah, thanks thank so much. Thank you, Nicholas. Thanks for for the opportunity. The tests, they come in boxes. They are boxed up, packaged to sell, and so that they can be carried around place to place by examiners, administrators, the testers. The boxes hold all the things that constitute the test together. The box makes many things into just one thing, a test. The blocks, puzzles, toy animals, papers, writing utensils, string, pictures become, for example, the Stanford Binet Scales of Intelligence. The things are together in a box, and now they are a test. Together, they are a kit. The boxes create a world, a little universe inside, with its own logic and language. Boxes are crypts, tombs, caskets, time capsules, cabinets, cases, jewelry boxes, moving boxes, storage boxes. Boxes are transparent, boxes are opaque, They are made of wood, of plastic, of paper, of cardboard, of clay, of tin, of steel, of styrofoam. Boxes hide things. Boxes hold things. Boxes put things away. Gifts are boxes. Gifts are wrapped up boxes. Boxes hold secrets. Boxes sit undiscovered, forgotten. Boxes entomb. A museum is to a box as a gallery is to a cube white cube, black box. Here, a display case reboxes the boxes. The tests are unboxed and reboxed. The test boxes are boxed, inboxed, inboxed, boxed in. These cabinets are closed. The boxes are now unboxable. The tests were unboxed. An unboxing took place. Like these unboxing videos on YouTube, shopping halls, there was an unboxing, oh look, look, what's in this box? 
all the little treasures. We take them out one by one, boxes and boxes. The joy, white gloves, behind closed doors, labels tied to boxes by twine, archive boxes in gray, manila, dark green, black, taken down from the shelves, onto a cart, wheeled to the reception desk. They wait in case you will come to look inside. Here is where the boxes are constructed from flat pack cardboard, pre-cut with an instruction sheet. Here's where the things were first put into these boxes. First organized and labeled, the exemplary objects were selected. Were they reshuffled, reorganized? What was thrown away? In the exhibition, the row of big boxes. The question is, what of this idea of boxes is communicable? We put little animals, the little people, the little wooden furniture, the little trees, we put them out on a shelf. We kept each category of things together because each category of this little world, this world building test, was organized together into individual boxes. The sheep, the cows, the little tiny dogs, and the comparatively large chickens, the horses of different sizes, together animals. The fighting men, the smaller of the circa 1950s depictions of Native Americans, people. We unbox the toys and put them out, mingling between categories only in the center of each shelf. This isn't how it will be, but it gives an idea of the space that these objects suddenly take up once they come out of the box. Why, again, were the objects categorized like this? I seem to remember that Margaret Lohenfeld kept the objects organized in her impressively extensive and ever-growing cabinet of toys. The manual for this world-building test also had some category names in it. What an odd mirror. The categorization of objects to categorize human test subjects. A box of schizophrenics. There are too many tests, it appears, for this space. There are too many ideas in each object. In each test kit, connecting differentiating. The tests represent so many things. The tests aren't all tests of intelligence, but the tests all say something about how to sort people, how to organize the ways that people think, function, operate. I deterred one person's work, asking for the manual for the lighter scales so that I could cheat. I'm disappointed by the answer and still confused, and still couldn't solve the puzzle without the key. Acting in part as proof that once all the boxes are unpacked, they explode and take up endless space. Holding the objects inside cases can only contain them so much. This is a Praxis Podcast.